Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Christy Sullivan is passionate about helping others to learn how to follow and sustain a low-carb lifestyle. Her passion is fueled by her personal experience with obesity, which started in childhood. Christy began a strict ketogenic lifestyle in 2013. As a result, she has lost over 100 pounds and significantly improved her health. Because of her personal success, she began helping others who also struggled as she did. Christy established a popular YouTube channel, Cooking Keto with Christy. She has also authored several best-selling books, including Journey to Health, A Journey Worth Taking, Keto Living Day by Day, and Keto Gatherings. Christy focuses on clean eating approach to a low-carbohydrate diet. She also holds a PhD in educational research and policy analysis from North Carolina State and enjoyed a 30-year career in higher education before joining Diet Doctor full-time, where she stayed until 2021 when she launched her new project, Homemade Health. She lives in the beautiful Sand Hills region of North Carolina with her husband, David, and their two children, Grace and Jonathan. Christy Sullivan, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Thank you. You make me sound old. (laughs) (laughs) I love your work. I love your work. I have followed you for a very long time. I can't tell you, I know you're not affiliated with them anymore, but I cannot tell you what a a tremendous resource Diet Doctor has been for us and for our clients. Getting people onto those meal plans that you were largely responsible for were Mm -hmm. magic were absolutely magic. We would share around some of those recipes and give people samples of those meal plans in what what we were doing at the gym, which was a 60-day weight loss contest. And we went completely rogue. Once we found low-carbohydrate diets, we stopped doing what our company told us to do, and we started giving people your meal plans and your recipes from Diet Doctor and telling people to make these foods, eat as much of of them as they like, feed them to your kids, add carbohydrates to these if you like. And we had tremendous, tremendous success people melting away like pounds and pounds and pounds of fat so on a personal note thank you so much on behalf of me my wife who also trained there and all the clients you've helped along the way oh thank you i i love that i it feels so good to hear that um because you know as you mentioned i struggled with weight my entire life and so when i started doing low carb keto i realized very quickly it was about the food like i've been on every diet on the planet and this food doesn't suck like this is really and my husband, um, who likes to eat as much as I do, was just like, he kept asking me, like, we can eat this? Like, are you sure? Like, we, it's part of our diet. I mean, I really think there were times that he thought I was like just sabotaging us or something. But, but that's why when I started sharing, and, and the reason I started sharing is because I'd struggled all my life. It was like, you know what? What you do in the gym is important, Casey. I'm not going to take anything away from that. But if people can get their food right, and by right, I mean focusing on, it's just fresh meats, vegetables, dairy, eggs, things like that, seafood, um, and get away from some of the processed stuff that's just shoved at us in our society. It's a huge difference. And it tastes so much better. I've got these two kids who are food stops, let me just tell you, um, because they're used to having you know, fresher foods at home. That's amazing. Yeah, I absolutely love that. When we would show people pictures of some of those meals, it's like, who wouldn't want to eat this? These things are absolutely delicious, just like you said. And and one of the really challenging things in the beginning was trying to tell people, like, you really don't need to portion control this. You really don't need to hold yourself back. Like, for the first time in your life, you can experience satiety. What does it mean to not feel so hungry all the time? And it, it's weird because people are programmed to do that. And even with, you know, these low carbohydrate, really healthy meals, people want a portion control. They don't want to have too many calories, but they realize if I do that now I'm back to snacking, I'm getting hungry all the time. It's such a different paradigm. It it really is. And I think you said something super important is the whole hunger thing. You know, that was, I think I was born hungry and there have been very few days in my life before keto, but I wasn't constantly hungry. And I tell the story where like the third day of keto, um, and I didn't know it wasn't a thing back then. Like it really wasn't. I just stumbled onto it from reading Gary Taub's book, Why You Get Fat. I was doing uh, Eric Westman's plan, page four, and the very back of that book in the appendix. But I, the third day I was at my office at the school, at the college, and we had this huge project and I had just finished one section and I stood up and I was literally kind of moving the pile on my desk thinking, what's next? And I was like, oh, I'm feeling a little hungry. And I looked at the clock on my computer. It was after three in the afternoon. Amazing. And 
I mean, I was one of those people. I, I'm not kidding you. I would like have breakfast. I would have a snack at 10 o'clock. I'd have lunch around 12, a snack at two. And again, I would eat again before I left the house in case I got hungry on the way home. And I was eating while I was cooking dinner for the kids. It was constant. I had food in my desk, food in my work bag, food in my car, food on the nightstand at night. And it, it, I'm not kidding. This is no exaggeration. And it was such a big thing to miss a meal. And I hadn't had a snack. I'd had my breakfast that morning. And this was, you know, again, fasting was a thing. Then I called like my best friend, like from, from fourth grade, I called her and said, you're not going to believe what just happened. I forgot to eat. And she, like, she was amazed too. She knows me that well. Like, and I, I remember saying to her, like, I've heard about people doing that, but that's never happened to me. But yeah, that hunger um, that goes away is nothing. It's just incredibly freeing. Yeah. So free. No, that's a great point. It's so funny you mentioned that. I just started with some new clients um, a week or two ago, and we were talking about their meals. And, and and again, they can't imagine like what it would be like to not have breakfast or a snack. And I said, you just text me. Text me the time. It's going to sneak up on you. You're not going to know it when it happens until you look back at your day. But I want you to text me the time that you realize you skipped a meal. It's, it's magic. It's like you said, wow. It's so cool. It is, really. It's so cool. We're talking about keto. We're talking about low carb in the introduction. We talked about, you know, strict ketogenic eating. We talked about clean ketogenic mm-hmm. eating and, and that that's all really well and good. And it's really part of our journey as, as you know, we are dealing with our health and trying to figure out what foods are best. And, and we need to acknowledge that our, our journeys with food are just that it is a journey and they change all the time. And once you've arrived at what you think works, like, like, you know, I'll give me as an example, I feel like I found a diet that really works. And so now my stupid nutrition brain wants to go down and shove everybody with the same diet that I'm doing. And that doesn't necessarily work. And I know you've had an evolution with food as well. And I would love to talk about that um, with you and ad- address that. Mm-hmm. But before we do, I would love to also hear your story. What was it like to grow up mm-hmm. with, we mentioned in the introduction, obesity that really started in childhood? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I remember being overweight and um, like at three years old. And I remember crying. My mom had taken me to get pictures and I um, had a sleeveless dress. And at three, I was crying because my arms were big and I didn't want to have. So you see this picture of me with, you can see my eyes have been red and pigtails. I'm three years old um, because I thought my arms looked fat. Um, And they were because I was overweight. But I also, yeah, I, my parents were doing what they thought was the right thing. And now remember, I was growing up in the 80s was like low fat, low fat, low fat. And I weighed well over 100 pounds by third grade. And I was well over 200 pounds by the time I got into seventh grade. And, you know, it, it's hard. Like you are the I was, I was lucky that I was always like a smart kid. Um, so I was like, if we were doing um, a spelling bee, like everybody wanted me to be the captain of the team. If we were outside playing kickball, no lie, the two boys who were the most athletic boys in the class, we got, literally got into a fist fight over who had to take me on their team. Oh, like, no, you have her. After the last time and we lost. And they're like shoving each other. I can see it to this day. So, yeah, I was told there wasn't clothes, like there weren't plus size clothing. There, there, none of that was there. Um, I, When I say I tried everything, I mean the cabbage soup diet. My mom took me probably about eighth or ninth grade um, to an acupuncturist, and they put a little spring in your ear. And every time you're hungry, you're supposed to press that spring, and it would take your hunger away. Could you not? Absolute gospel truth. And yeah, it was crazy. Um, like the cabbage soup diet, um, you know, well-meaning adults, I'll pay you a dollar a pound if you'll lose weight. Because everybody kind of knew that my weight was out of control, but no one knew how to help me. And there was also this whole thing, boy, this is complicated, so I don't want to go too far down this, but this whole thing of food is love. Um, you know, they, they would, my grandparents would say, we'll give you a dollar a pound if you'll just lose weight. But then the very next day, my grandmother would call me to tell me she'd bake me a chocolate pound cake. Uh, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, but it's not their fault. But anyway, um, a young adult, I was overweight. Um, I finally, at the age of, thir- well, right before I was 30, boy, I'm going to give my age away. <laughs> hard. But um, I was in my late 20s and I weighed over 300 pounds. I was 313 pounds. I am five foot tall now. And I was five foot tall then. 
And so you can imagine, I was wearing like a size 26, it's hard to buy clothing, uh, limited mobility, everything made me out of breath. Uh, but anyway, I decided to have gastric bypass surgery and it was new. And I did the root and why procedure, which is where they actually go in and literally remove part of your stomach. Now, at this point in my life, I would do anything to be thin. I, I never thought about any long-term consequences. The, uh, I went to a medical teaching hospital to have it done. I was part of a study. No one knew what the long-term consequences might be, but they knew that it made you lose weight. We had those success numbers of people losing weight. So anyway, I had that and I lost down to 179 pounds. It's the lowest I remember weighing as their gastric bypass. Um, met my husband, <laughs> got married, had kids, started gaining weight um, because we had some pregnancy losses. And the next thing I knew, I was back up to 270 some pounds and I was miserable and I had scoliosis. So I had back issues and I was having a lot of pain. And I, it was, I, I shared the story on my YouTube channel. I called it my failure story. And people were like, well, you're not a failure. And I was like, I have failed my entire life because I'd lose weight and gain it. I did a cabbage soup diet and lose 20 pounds and gain back 30. I did gastric bypass and lost, you know, from 313 to 179. And then here I was again, getting, you know, beating on the door of 300 pounds. And I felt like my husband deserved more. My children deserved more. I could not do physically do the things that I wanted to do with them. And I, I just didn't feel like I was the mom they deserved or the wife. And it got to that point, and I'm not exaggerating, I wish I was, but it got to the point where it's like, I've done everything I've ever wanted to do in my life. We've got a PhD, we have a nice house, I have a fantastic husband, two incredible kids who are a gift because of all the losses and all the hard things we had. And here I am like screwing up every day by being obese. Why can't I figure this out? So I took that PhD and I, it let me log into databases, right? Because that's that was my job. I had access to the, and so I started reading medical journals. Now I was on different pain medications for my back at the time, but I started taking all these like supplements. If I read a journal like that said that this would burn fat, I'd order it and take it. Um, Bromelad, B-R-O-M-E-L-A-I-D. I mean, I was going to do it or die trying. And I did the whole like, white knuckled my way through um, about two weeks of restricted calorie diets. And, and I decided I'm going to do this or die trying. Because remember, I had said my husband and my kids deserve more, and they're better off without me. And I'd already, I mean, I knew who was going to find my body and everything. That's like how serious this was. I wasn't going to live like this. And so anyway, I did the whole low fat calorie thing. The first week I was miserable, but I lost weight. So it's okay. You know, you're supposed to be miserable, right? <laughs> when you're starving yourself. I was actually going to the gym, doing cardio, you know, burn it off. And the second week, I didn't lose anything. I didn't lose an ounce. And I remember calling a good friend of mine on the way to work at the end of that second week. And I said, I don't know what I'm doing here. This, you know, I, I'm, I'm lost. <laughs> I've been trying so hard. Nothing's working. I'm not in a good place. And that's when she told me about Gary Taub's book. That was on June 19th, 2013. I went into my office, ordered his book. Thank you, Amazon. It came on the 21st. And then I actually got started. I devoured it. I devoured the book. And on the 23rd, I was like, I'm going to try this. I started on the 23rd because I tried everything else. And yeah, maybe Gary Taub's and Eric Westman are nuts, but I know I'm better, right? So I may as well try this. And that's where it just the change began. So then to get to your point, I became like this, I don't know, evangelist. I don't know, like it works for me. This is the holy grail. And I left my, I retired. I left my job in higher education. Uh, I was able to retire early, early. Not that old, Casey. I retired <laughs> early. Um, I was able to do that because I wanted to help people. And that was the whole thing of starting the YouTube channel. I mean, I never was like, oh, I'm going to be on YouTube. And my brother was just like, you've got to share your story. This is so compelling. You can really help people. And we'd be out to eat. And I'd see women who, you know, obviously were struggling with weight, having a salad. And I'm over there having some brisket and chicken wings, baby. I mean, eating the good life. 
So I, that's where I really started, you know, saying you got to figure out the food, figure out the food and really helping people. So I started cooking keto with Christy on my YouTube channel, showing people these meals that were really good and that would allow you to lose weight. And it just kind of took off from there. I, my followers, I had 30,000 followers in, um, in 2016 and they asked me to do a, uh, a book, a uh, and so I self-published a cookbook. I had no idea what I was doing. I'm working full-time. I got these two young kids in elementary school. And I put this book together and put it out there, made every mistake. I didn't have a hashtag. I didn't promote it on social media. It, 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 a book. I, and again, it went like number one on Amazon. This was at the late February of 2017. I finally got it done and got it out there. I had three different publishers calling me. How'd you get your book to rank on Amazon? I'm like, I don't know. It's like this kind of bumping into stuff accidentally. I was still working full time. And then these three different publishers, we want to publish your next book. And I was like, I don't know if I'm doing the next book. Like, you know, I, I can go to the PTA meeting, excuse me. <laughs> um, but the people were so hungry for that information. And the food, let's go back to what we said before. The food was such a hook because it is tasty. I started teaching classes locally and I'd make food. I, I charged enough just to, to make food, not to pay myself because I was really adamant that people try to take advantage of folks who are overweight or obese. And so I really wanted to to just share what I had you know, found. But you're right. I became very... Um, uh, fixated on this is the answer and everybody should eat this way. It worked for me. And so everybody should do it. And I think that that, I think that does a disservice. And I think we have maybe too much of that going on. Um, I think that, I know, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but maybe keto isn't the holy grail that I thought it was uh, for all people. And I think that, that we have to honor that our bodies are different and not just our bodies respond to different things in terms of bio-individuality, which I, I do believe is a thing, but our lifestyles and how we're psychologically programmed respond differently to different ways of eating. Yeah, no, that's such a great answer. I absolutely love that. I have to ask, since you mentioned the cabbage soup diet, did you ever come across the new cabbage soup diet? It's my favorite book title ever. <laughs> I have not. I've, I've, oh my gosh, I've got PTSD from the whole cabbage soup thing. It's a long story that you probably don't want to talk about, but I was on a magazine cover. No lie. Professional photographer, lady came in to do my hair and makeup and pick out my clothing, did these photos, put me on this darn magazine and used me to promote the cabbage soup no. diet. It was, I was mortified, absolutely mortified. I'm on the phone with my publisher. It was insane. My followers, I shared and my, I have a large Facebook group. My followers found it. They went after the magazine. The magazine had to take down their social media page. And the publisher of the magazine is calling me from New York. Like, I, I didn't know who you were. I just, your pictures look good. And so we put you on the cover, but I didn't know who you were. And I was like, but that doesn't make it okay. Just because you don't know who I am does not make it okay to be untruthful. It was terrible. And they're, they're begging me, please take, take, call your people off. And so I, you know, I didn't mean that I didn't ever stick my people on them, but, and I did, but yeah. So cabbage soup diet and I, we're not close. A little PTSD. Like you said, that's so funny. I always just thought it was funny. The word new, like what, what, what is the new version of this diet? Is this like 25% less cabbage or something? Like what, what did you change the original iteration? That's a, that's a hilarious story now, but you're right. Probably a little traumatic going through everything. Wow. Okay. So I, I, again, I want to talk about that journey through keto and through, you know, the, the other side of it, because I think that's such an important part. I also want to ask you, why did you decide to make food and making food and recipes where you wanted to focus? Because that was a big gap at that time. You couldn't find a lot of, you could find, you know, Gary Taub's book and, and, you know, Nina Teichel's came along a little after that. You could find those and those were a little bit more scientific, but there was very little that was like practical, not only just like, here's a recipe, but here's how to cook. Casey, you said you absolutely hit the nail on the head. There was all this, here's what to do, but there was nobody showing you how to do it. And I knew that I had spent hours in the grocery store reading the labels, figuring out which tomato sauce has the lowest carbs and how to make, um, I'm from the South, how to make biscuits and gravy. 
And those were the things that I knew helped me to be successful. And so I'm not, I'm not a medical professional. I'm not a nutritionist or dietitian or any of those things. So I had to walk carefully as to what kind of truths I could tell or what I could promote people. So I can't even tell you that this is a diet for you, but what I can tell you is this is what I did. So I simply started by showing people what I did. Um, you know, one of my books is called Crazy Busy Keto. And that was that came out of being a mom with two kids who were involved in every activity known to man. Um, and, you know, they all had to be at the same place at different time or different places at the same time. Um, and a husband who worked out of town. And so it was just me working full time and trying to manage all of the writing books and things like that. And so Crazy Busy Keto is a way of trying to help people figure out how to make it fit into a practical lifestyle, but doing, still doing clean keto, not necessarily eating, you know, bars and shakes and crappy excuses for nutrition. <laughs> I know I'm still biased there about real food. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, so that so that's kind of why I fell into that. I don't know if you want to say that's a niche or a niche or whatever. I don't know if you want to say that's what it is, but that was my way of helping. Yeah. Let me show you what to eat and how I do it. Because the other thing, Casey, that I think we do forget, I grew up with two grandmothers who cooked. But my mom, not so much. And what happened, I knew how to cook. I learned kind of watching them. But there are people who really don't know how. And I never forget, I was trying to help this young lady. And I was telling her, um, you know, local store had ground beef on sale for $2.99 a pound on Tuesday to go buy her ground beef. And she looked me in the eye, dead serious, and said, well, what do I do with raw ground beef? Yeah, she didn't know because I'm like, well, what do you do when you eat a hamburger? I mean, she was going out to eat. She would buy the already preformed patties, things like that. She really didn't know what to do with it. Um, she'd buy the jarred spaghetti sauce that has meat in it, the meat sauce. And I that again, so I realized that if I'm going to truly help people, and it was always about helping people, if I'm going to truly help people, then this is how I help them. I show them how to shop and how to make these meals. That's yeah, that's absolutely amazing. So when you're thinking back and, you know, looking back on what you've done, was, was the barrier to entry for most people, um, that, that it was low carb and people didn't understand low carb as much, or was the barrier to people really that they didn't have the, the, the skills, the know-how in the kitchen? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Um, yeah, I do. I think it's a combination, but I think more than anything, and this is a, this is huge. Um, have you ever traveled into a different country? Have you ever been, um, where, uh, where the customs are different or the language is different perhaps? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So when you're, if you've ever been in that situation, what's normal to them is not normal to you. And then after you've been through that experience of living in a different place or visiting a different place, you look back at your own kind of situation and go, well, you know, what's normal to me feels weird. Well, I think that's kind of where you, where I have journeyed with food, because what's normal, what people tend to eat, most families tend to eat at the drive-thru, the burgers and fries and shakes and um, those kinds of things, that, that's normal in our family like people I am a weirdo because I make my own barbecue sauce or I make my own ketchup right or I make my own mayonnaise to avoid the seed oils like what when you once you kind of taken that path and you've decided you're going to do really clean kind of eating then it is hard to go back and remember what people are doing so what so yeah so when I think people struggle it's I don't know what to eat because you're taking away <laughs> my Cheerios and my bagels and my cereal for, you know, you're taking all these things away. You're telling me I can't have it. Well, what the heck can I have? And then you're telling them to have eggs and bacon. And they're like, well, bacon makes a mess in my kitchen. Um, you know, I don't have time to fix eggs. I don't like eggs. And so those are the kinds of practical things. Um, that we're so accustomed, what's natural for us are those highly ultra-processed things that are carbohydrates that don't have true nutrition or don't have any protein, really. Um, we're so conditioned to get that because it's shelf-stable, it's quick, it's what everybody else eats, right? It's normal. Um, you're going to be the weirdo with your boiled egg at snack while everybody else is having, you know, the different thing. And so I think that is also really, really, it is a cultural shift in the way that we think about eating. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I think back, this has been almost two decades now, but I spent two years living in Brazil. And, you know, I had done a year of college. And so my lunches are PBJs and it's ramen and it's granola bars, whatever I can get for super cheap or whatever I can steal when I when I go home for the weekends at my parents' house and just like fill my car with a bunch of their food. But but yeah, like every single afternoon, like it would be weird to go to a restaurant. We would eat at the house of, of you know, the people that lived there and they would prepare us meals. And it was the first time I'd ever had, you know, chicken on the bone that was inexpensive and they're making rice and beans for pretty much every meal. But the beans have been, you know, soaked and, and put through a pressure cooker, not, not an instant pot, but like a, a bomb potential bomb pressure cooker, <laughs> cooker than that 20 years ago. And you realize that this is, it was more of an experience. You're having conversation, you're talking with people. And I didn't get, you yeah. know, besides my own family dinners that we did from time to time, you don't get that feel of that experience. So it is a cultural thing. That was a really good point. Yeah, it is a cultural thing. And we are so darn busy. I mean, families don't feel like they have the luxury of really sitting down together um, to have meals. And so that's the other part, too. Um, The last book I published was called Growing Up Keto. And that was about really how to do this with a family when you have kind of different schedules, but making things, too, that are different different schedules and different food preferences because that's the other piece that can be really hard when some like spicy and some don't like chicken and you know, whatever. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. But it is that cultural thing of, well, what families sit down for meals together anymore. Yeah, totally. Totally. So, okay. So another question I have for people that you have taught, you know, basic cooking skills, have you ever had somebody that was learning more and more about how to cook, how to get better at cooking, how to use the tools in the kitchen? Have you ever had somebody go, you know what? Ah, this sucks. I don't want to do this. I want to go back to eating my fast food. Have you ever, do you, do you ever get that experience? Yeah, that's funny. Not, I really don't. I mean, instead what happens, um, is, so I started, when I left iBudger, I started a cooking community and it's called, it's homemade.health and we cook. And now I do other things too. I provide them meal plans that, you know, with recipes and it. And I, we talk about higher protein. If you want to do higher protein, adjust this recipe to do X, Y, Z. When I give them product buying guides, if you want to buy yogurt, here's what you want to look at on the container and the ingredients and the macros and that kind of thing. But we cook together. And so what I find is really simple stuff like, like um, chicken. I'll give you an example of chicken. We had this recipe and um, you basically get your skillet like searing hot, right? You want it on really high heat, get your your fat in there, like your olive oil or whatever. You, you have a relatively thin chicken breast, sear it. We set a timer, sear it like two minutes on each side. You turn it down, pour some jarred salsa on it, right? or pour some marinara or salsa verde, right? You don't have to make that fresh. You don't have to boil the tomatillos, but pour your sauce on, turn it on low, pour your sauce on, let it simmer, go fix your plate, get you some ice water, get something to drink, set your timer. Five or 10 minutes later, it's done. And it's super, super tender. If you put the marinara on it, you can put some fresh uh, mozzarella and have a chicken marguerite, a little basil in there too. Um, If you have put salsa verde, put some crumble, some queso fresco on top of that, right? And you're not chopping vegetables. You're not doing all these things. But for my family, that's a meal. And so I will do that kind of, I call it skillet chicken. And I'll do barbecue chicken. Sometimes I sear it like that. And I do the barbecue sauce and some uh, cheddar cheese and green onions and things like that but I've done like four different kinds and put it on the table and everybody just kind of eats what they want they have a variety but what happened when I show people how to do that this lady's like my chicken is always so tough nobody wants to eat it this is like tender and juicy and we talked about like it's searing it because you you seared the juices in and it's completely done you know you're not eating raw chicken by any stretch of the imagination and then you put the sauce and it simmered just enough to kind of bring the temperature up but yeah I think that and then they love it. And then they start talking about, they. I've had a lot of people tell me that they've become food snobs uh, when they go out to eat. They're like, I don't like to eat out anymore because the food I make is just so much better. So much better. It's so much better. You can taste it. If you've been making your own food and cooking with real fats, when you go back to a restaurant, it is not as good. You can taste the seed oils. You can taste the filler ingredients they have. Your taste buds will absolutely change. That's amazing. And you know, the whole reason I remember to reach out to you um, 
was because I found a post that you did not too long ago, which is about marinating meat. And those simple tips and tricks, like I marinate meat all the time and I forgot, like you do need to bring it out of the fridge for a little while. And you talked about like how much of the actual marinade gets absorbed into the meat and things like that. It's amazing. Just a few simple tips and tricks to make your food taste better goes so far. It really does. And I think you also have to give people permission um, to kind of experiment a little bit. I mean, what, and I, you know, I'm very much a fan of that whole, like, feed a man, uh, give a man a fish, you fed him for a day, teach him how to fish. And so the whole thing with marinade, we did a session on this in my cooking community on marinade. Then we talked about what are the components, the acid, right? The fat, and then the seasoning. And so it can, your, your acid can be like lemon juice, lime juice, uh, balsamic vinegar, red wine vinegar, you know, any of those kinds of things. Your fat, I usually use olive oil. You want something that's going to stay liquid even in the refrigerator. And then whatever seasoning, and you can adapt it. And you, it can be very, it's kind of a formula. These are Asian flavors. These are Italian flavors and so on. Um, and then I did, you were talking about the, how much of the marinade's absorbed. I was driving myself crazy going, well, what are the macros for this? Because we're tossing the marinade out. Not all of this olive oil is going to be absorbed in the or not all the balsamic vinegar. That was a big thing, worrying about the carbs. And then I read that when you're doing this, you only have to count like one third of the macros in the meat. Um, I'm trying to remember the source now and I don't remember if you're interested, I'll find it. But you only have to count one third of it. And that was a huge kind of release. But once you teach people how to do that, then they can, you know, they don't have to stand in their kitchen and go, oh, I don't have lime juice, what do I do? They know, oh, I can use lemon juice or let me try a different vinegar. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, we talked about being free from hunger, but having that kind of confidence in the kitchen is a, another kind of freedom too. Yeah. I absolutely love that. Okay. I've got a three part question. I'll ask each in its own, but the first one is what are your, if, if I have no skills whatsoever in the kitchen, what mm -hmm. are the best skills I need to start by learning? Yikes. Um, I would honestly, I would say learn how to cook meat. I know we were just talking about meat, but if you can get the protein and a meal right, if you can get the protein right, then the rest of the meal just comes together, right? Um, so, so yeah, that I would say get familiar with that, learn the different cuts of meat. Um, and that, yeah, that's where I would start to focus. That's great. And you just answered the second question, which is which foods should we focus on, which you answered, which is fantastic. And so I will ask you, for for a lot of people when they're consuming the protein, they're, they, they, they complain that like, well, ribeyes are really expensive or, you know, the, the, the choice cuts are, are, are price prohibitive. I can't buy grass-fed beef. And it's like, you know what? Like, I love good quality meat also, and I'll buy it when I can. But I have found a lot of success by going straight to the reduced meat section and, and and buying from there. This is meat that is going to go bad. I feel like I'm doing my part by buying it and cooking it. And I just need to be creative about finding ways to make tougher cuts that maybe require longer cooks to taste better. So what are some tips and tricks you have around what I would consider also the more flavorful cuts? I think, I don't think like a tenderloin tastes as good as like Chuck or something like that that you can buy for far less. Um, how, how, how do we think about preparing some of those, some of those, uh, I, I guess, less quote unquote ideal cuts? Right. No, I think that's a great question. I think all of us are having to, like, when you think about grocery bills, um, it's just staggering how things have gone up. But I'm I'm a fan too. Um, I've also learned, this may help your your listeners a little bit. If you go to the, if you had the luxury, I realize I have a luxury with my schedule, but go to the grocery store in the mornings um, within an hour or so of when they've opened, go, that's when they do the first markdown. So the markdown meets then. Or if you can't do that, go in the afternoon around 2.30, 3.30, and it's going to vary by store. But they know that there's a huge rush of people coming in after work. They mark the meat down then as well. So check in the morning or check late in the afternoon. And then when you're looking at it, do look at the cuts. And I mean, we have the advantage of Google, but some, some cuts of meat need to be braised. Um, they need to be cooked. As, uh, there's dry heat methods and there's, there's wet heat methods. So if you've got a cut like a chuck roast, um, that could be tough if you don't cook it properly. You're not going to go, if you see a chuck roast, you're going to be chewing on it like leather. You're not going to love that. Same thing with a London broil. You're not really going to love that. But if you marinate them, remember, acid, fat, seasoning, marinate them even just an hour or two, and you're going to notice a tremendous difference in how flavorful, how, how tender that is. Um, now, I don't know about you, but here, 
support has been recently has been less expensive than a lot of other things. Um, it, it, it kind of surprises me, but pork loin, which is a lean pork and can be very tough and it's easy to overcook. Um, that has been like a dollar 99 a pound, which I know, like I said, it's regional, but they, the problem is they come in like eight pound things. Right. Yes, yeah. But yeah. So, but I've been buying pork loin and I've been doing this to share the recipe with my, with my cooking community folks, but I've been developing recipes using that. So one, I, I sliced it into like pork loins, one inch or so thick and wrapped in bacon. And um, with some rosemary, put a spray, I grow it. So I put a spray of rosemary and I'm teaching them how to sear that. Another, I made a uh, mustard and herb crusted loin, same kind of thing. Um, I've used one, I made a uh, pork uh, chili verde last night for supper. I had to make my husband not eat it all so I could get it photographed <laughs> today. Uh, <laughs> But again, trying to teach them how to use those cuts to make them more tender. So in that case, you're going to sear it to make it tender. Or that slow, uh, uh, wet heat kind of thing where you're putting it in a soup or a stew and letting it over time kind of break down and become more tender. Um, Anyway, so but yeah, I would say... And, and let me back up the point of that. There's eight pounds. I'm making it. <laughs> I made it into the bacon wrap. I did the mustard crusted. I've got the pork and chili verde. And now I'm also using it. He's getting it as an Asian dish tonight. <laughs> but it's not like he's eaten. He doesn't feel like he's eaten pork for the past four days. That's amazing. Like I've been able to vary it. That's yeah. amazing. That is such great timing. I just was thinking the other day, I went out to my freezer and saw that I have one of those giant things of pork, pork shoulder or pork butt or whatever. And I was like, I, I, I need to cook this. I don't know how to make this taste good and be flavorful. And if I make all of this, there's no way I'm going to get through this in a week. I'm going to get really sick of it. It's going to be dry. So that's a really great idea is to source, you know, different meals with the same cut. I think that's brilliant. The, the meat, the time of, of the discounted meat, I think is wonderful. I went into a local store not too long ago in that early afternoon, they had marked down pasture raised eggs to 99 cents a dozen. Imagine, wow. imagine the cashier's look of horror on her face when I walked my cart up with 12 dozen eggs. <laughs> Clean them out. <laughs> Clean She's them like, out. Hey, is he spelling these? Is he going to get eggs or you're young enough? She thought you were going to get eggs in somebody's car. Right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a good point. Okay, awesome. That, that was super practical. I really appreciate that. My last question for somebody who doesn't do a lot of cooking themselves, equipment. What is the most important piece of equipment maybe to start with? A tough question. It is a tough question, um, but I'm going to say, I hope I get this right, um, for $100, let me choose skillet. Um, if you've got a really good skillet, I th- um, and I do prefer a nonstick skillet. I don't prefer cast iron, believe it or not, but a really oh, wow. good skillet. Yeah, and, and if it's oven, if, the, if it's an oven-proof skillet, that's even better. Um, I'm a fan of Le Creuset, which is a little pricey, yeah. but, which is why I don't, which I don't have a lot. <laughs> Or I got them for Christmas presents. Nice. But yeah, if you've got a good skillet, you can braise. You can, if it goes in the oven, especially, you can use it as a casserole dish. You can braise, you can sear, you can fry, you can saute. Um, yeah, you can do a lot with a skillet. Yeah, that sounds great. Awesome. I was trying to think if I would maybe go for either air fryer or Instant Pot. But when I think about those, I use those occasionally. I use my skillet every single day. I, I, I use that all the time. And it's funny. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same with food quality as it is with the quality of the tools in your kitchen. You're going to start out by trying to get the cheapest stuff. Over time, you're going to realize that the cheapest food, well, you don't need to spend more money, but you start to realize, like, if I make tomato sauce from scratch, that tastes better than the can of, you know, whatever I can buy at the store. You'll you'll just naturally select for better tasting food and you'll, you'll cook more from scratch. And I think the same with the equipment. Mm-hmm. Like, I used to think, like, it would it'd be a better value to have four different chef's knives that I got for 10 bucks each. And it's like, no, 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 no. Get one really nice chef tape, chef's knife, take really good care of it, and, and that's way better. You're going to cut yourself less. It, it's going to be so much more efficient in the kitchen. So I think you'll naturally select for more expensive things just because the quality is so much better and you realize you're, you are investing in something that's going to give you way more quality for much, much longer. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I love what you said about the, the way things are prepared. Um, I, 
I, this is may come across as blasphemous, but I can't love a, an Instant Pot. I cannot, I cannot make food that's really, really flavorful. And I think it's because of that, like the pressure cooking it, it just, it gets, it, if it's really well done, it's mushy and it's watery and the flavor just isn't there. I mean, you can do it, but you have to saute it. It takes a little more work. Um, and I think if you just take the same dish and make it on the stovetop and a really, you know, Dutch, a uh, heavy duty Dutch oven over time or roast it slow in the oven, just to me, the flavor is so much better. Yeah. Um, and my husband is similar to that with a crock pot. We actually did, in the cooking community, we did some batch cooking. And so I taught people like, you know, get six pounds of ground beef and we're going to make these three, <laughs> these three, we're going to make these three different recipes and put them in your freezer. And it, it's just been an amazing kind of thing. But in doing that and developing those recipes, I put instructions for how to do it in the slow cooker, the instant pot, and on the stove. And every single time, my husband, who bless his heart, has to eat this stuff for you know, dinner or lunch, said, you did this in the Instapot, didn't you? Or alternatively, he doesn't complain a lot. He'll say, this is so much better. You did this in the skillet or on the stovetop, didn't you? Yeah. And he can tell uh, by the cooking method. So uh, yeah, yeah, that's I'm a really school, that's I a, guess. That's a great point. No, I agree. When I make a chicken soup, it's a really simple thing. But you mentioned something that's so important. It's time. It needs time. You can't rush a really good soup. It's got to take the time that it's going to take. And the Instant Pot was helpful when I was getting started because it helped me to you know make things more quickly. But it's now the only thing I do in my Instant Pot is actually steam eggs. It makes really good like soft-boiled eggs. They come out really consistently, and I love it for that. But you're right. like You, you have to realize that these things do take time, and food in a slow cooker or on the stovetop that are allowed to develop those flavors are just they're far better far better yeah they really are and can you believe i am i'm probably like the only person on the planet who has never boiled eggs in the instant pot i've made yogurt um i've got a recipe on diet doctor for orange chicken and the, oh, yeah. the instant pot that one, yeah. uh, which is really good yeah, yeah. oh yeah <laughs> But I've never boiled eggs in them. I mean, I had to do that. Yeah, interesting. I, for me, I just find that they come out very consistently. Eggs are eggs. Eggs do whatever the hell eggs right. want to do. Like, you can do the <laughs> same recipe every single day, and they some some of the shells will stick on one, some of the shells won't stick on the other. But I've, I found that putting a little bit of water underneath the tray and kind of steaming the eggs produces a really consistent kind of soft-boiled egg that I really enjoy. But that's the only thing I use it for now. So, anyway. Right. But, but I will tell you this. You mentioned something that just cracks me up like the egg peeling the egg like you get yeah do not do not unless you have a death wish go into social media and ask about how to make the shells not stick to egg people will fight they'll like because their way is the best kind of like the way we're talking about a diet like no you have to do this no you have to do this egg has to be fresh the egg has to be old and it is hilarious to sit back and watch that is amazing. I love that. The egg wars. Maybe those those people will end up egging each other. Who knows? What a waste of eggs. <laughs> well, that's a perfect segue. I really wanted to make sure that we left some time to talk about this. The diet wars, the, 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 the culture around diet. You made a post today that I thought, or maybe yesterday, that I thought was specifically very meaningful and really profound. And there's a lot of nuance to this. And I see this going on a lot. And I, I wondered if we could maybe talk a little bit about this and how this is affecting people. You mentioned a podcast specifically. I'm I'm 99% sure I know which one that is where they pretty much, it, it's funny. Like they, they're, they're two funny people and they go around and they basically like poo-poo every diet out there. And, 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 and again, like it's, it's funny. And I, I see the humor and the entertainment around it. The the trouble that I have is when when they're saying things that either aren't true or are not based in science, and somebody hears that and says, "Oh, well, I knew that was not the right thing to do." These guys made a really funny thing about it. And again, I, I appreciate the entertainment from it, but it it gets a little bit tricky. So tell us a little bit about the diet wars and and the, this culture around diet. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of coined that. I don't know if it's a thing. I do. I think it's a thing, but I think there are, (laughs) we made it a thing. I I do think that there's this culture, this diet culture war. And on the one hand, you have influencers who, and I'll just throw me in there, 
who are people who are like, this is it. This is the Holy Grail. You have to do, do this diet and let me tell you how to do it. Oh, it didn't work for you. You didn't do it right. And so there's like all this messaging around, you know, being this ideal weight and, and even, and I think this is a problem in, in, in terms of like people who, you know, want to tell you about their diet plan. There are even people who I think are doing some things that are very unhealthy, not in the name of being healthy, but losing weight. You know, some of the things, and and I don't make a secret of this, I have a real problem with people doing extended fasting to lose weight when they already have, you know, BMI that's on the low normal side, but you see that happening. So so I think on the one hand, we have these people who are just like, you got to push harder, got to push harder, you got to be this ideal size, weight, whatever, uh, whatever. But then on the other hand, you've got this anti-diet culture. And this is huge on TikTok. Um, it's it's huge on podcasts and, and general media. It's, and I call it the anti-diet culture because they're saying you shouldn't diet. Everything in moderation. No food is a bad food. Um, and, you know, you, and there's also tied into it this whole body positivity and acceptance. And so I think there's some good on both sides. Um, I think, but I think there's a lot of people in the middle going, well, oh my gosh, what do I do? And so let's talk a minute about the anti-diet culture. That's the podcast that I was talking about where this person, where I believe totally misrepresented keto. They had one podcast that was just on keto. I listened to it and I'm like, I've been doing this for nine and a half years. I don't even know what she described. Yeah. It's very foreign than what I do. And she made it sound horrible and gave this whole list of like negative health effects that I have not found to be true for myself, my family, or other loved ones. But anyway, but there's all this like taking target practice that all these things that were bad, but there's no solution. And so she admits this particular this particular podcaster, and she's not the only one, that she will admit that she is morbidly obese, or I forget that I think there's another category super morbidly obese. I don't remember. There is some other category. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I don't remember what it's called, but she will admit that she falls into that category, but she is focused on acceptance. And she even talks about, there are people in her family who will say to her, I'm worried about your health. And she's like, they're not worried about my health. They're uncomfortable with my body. And I had to sit back and go, well, wait a minute. What about your health? I'm not saying that she's unhealthy because she's overweight, but we do, I do believe based on, on science and research that being overweight, particularly being obese, goes hand in hand, they're called comorbidities, with other diseases that are harmful to you. You know, do you have metabolic syndrome? Do you have high blood pressure? Do you, which is one of the things of metabolic syndrome. Do you have a, a big waist circumference? Are you insulin resistant? Do you have a high hemoglobin A1C? Are you at risk for diabetes or prediabetes? And, and that part doesn't get addressed by this anti-diet culture. The idea is no bad foods. I should be able to eat anything I want in moderation. And so I think that's dangerous. I think that's, I just think it's dangerous. And maybe it's true when you're in your, 20s or 30s, but then as you get older, if you've been living this, and then you wake up one time, you know, the, two, 10 years later and you're on insulin, um, when it could have been avoided. Now, the extreme part of that, I think, are the people who kind of hammer that you're not acceptable. And I, I will be completely honest, it kills me when there are you know, social media posts, influencers who post their before picture. And their before picture is like thinner than I am now. And they'll say, I lost a ton of weight doing XYZ plan. I lost 30 pounds. Let me tell you, there are people like me who's a lifer. Like I was more than 30 pounds overweight when I was three years old. Like, don't even tell me that you've been overweight. Like for me, that you know, I can gain or lose 30 pounds in six months, either direction, because it's such a struggle. And I'm not minimizing their credentials. I'm not minimizing their experience. So let's not get that wrong. But what that does is then you've got these people who probably, yeah, maybe it's some vanity weight. Maybe they need to lose 10, 15, 20 pounds to feel better about who they are. It's not a health imperative. So I want to be really clear about that. But then they're doing these extreme things that, may leave them being less healthy in the long run. And that is the other end of the extreme that concerns me. And no, again, I'm not minimizing any people want to lose 10 to 15 pounds of vanity weight, feel better about themselves, more power to them. But let's do it in a healthy way. Um, you know, I was reading about 
uh, muscle dysmorphia in males becoming such a thing. And part of that is seeing so much of the gym stuff online. And the dysmorphia is that they don't think they have as much muscle as they need or should have to be acceptable to who they are. So there's, there is that messaging of that perpetuates the bias of you're not good enough if you're not a certain size or again, this moral failing, you couldn't do keto, you know, it, 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 it would work if you just keto harder. And I, I, I disagree with that. And I think we have to be careful. I think people who have an audience and have a voice, I think we have to be super, super careful about that. Um, I don't know. I don't have answers for it, but I do think that in the middle, I think there's some good to be taken out of that. Um, you know, I told you, I shared with you that I weighed 313 pounds before I did uh, gastric bypass surgery. And I actually had a doctor take me through, uh, walk her through my history with Wendy. And I have, most of my life, I have weighed around 245, 250 pounds most of my life. And so one of the things that she said to me is, you know, your body's fighting to get back there because that is what's normal for you. And that struggle for me... I feel often that I get judged like, well, you're not a size four or size six. If keto really worked, you'd be thinner. And so I think that I kind of get that pushed on me and that bias because I'm not pencil thin. But yet when we when we stop and look at where I've been, come a long way. And my labs are perfect, except for thyroid right now. I'm struggling with that. But and, and deficiencies because I was you know, desperate enough to do a gastric bypass, which is the other, you know, 20 years uh, post-op, we know those deficiencies and the kinds of problems that they cause, which we didn't know then. So yeah, so those labs aren't perfect, but it's not because of overeating and that kind of thing. So that, does that make sense? There's this culture of telling us, do better, do better, do better. And then now there's this other culture of, well, you're good enough, nothing works. So what do you, yeah. What do you do? Yeah, no, I love that. I love that you were willing to go there with that kind of nuance and willing to say like, we don't really have answers because you're presenting both of those things. And I can see the good in both of those things as well. It's like, yeah, some people need to lose weight to be healthy. Some people actually don't need to lose weight to be healthy. And and so I'm curious, like, what are your favorite markers? You mentioned labs to measure not not weight or overweight, but health. What things do you like to see mm-hmm. in health? Wow, that's a fabulous question. Um, and, and remember, I'm not credentialed. This is just me kind of answering that sure. question. But but I think it's important two things. I think it's important that we, there's a, a physiological health, right? And, and I do think in terms of labs, like a, a healthy hemoglobin A1C, um, that all those metabolic syndrome markers of blood pressure, waist circumference, you know, all of those pieces, I do think is an important part of health. But I also think what we forget a lot of times is the psychological component of health. Am I taking a healthy approach to this? And that's really hard to see when you see it in the moment. Um, and sometimes it's hard for people around you to even see too. But I think the healthy, when I say the healthy approach, um, there was a lady who it was in a fasting group. And she says that she's wearing a size four in pants and small in clothing. And she, again, she's one of those people who started, you know, a, probably around a size 10 or 12, which for somebody like me, who with a size like 20 most of her life, like that ain't so big in my brain. But she started there and she's lost like 30 or 40 pounds in a month. And she's doing week long fasts. And she went to see her doctor. Her doctor did labs and her doctor's concerned that she has uh, that an eating disorder. One, because of the rapid weight loss. And then two, because there's some markers in her labs that are problematic. And this person is in a fasting group talking about how upset she is with her doctor. And her doctor had asked her some questions about eating that she didn't want to answer. And overwhelmingly, what she was getting from the members of this community were, good for you for standing up for that doctor. Good for you for, oh, you look fantastic with your weight loss. Good for you. And there were very, I didn't comment, but there were very few of us who were going, well, wait a minute, you, you know, <laughs> is this a healthy approach? You've lost this much weight this quickly. 
And and they weren't even saying it like that. But that's the kind of thing where I talk about being healthy. It's it's fine to want to be a size four. If your body's built that way and you can do that, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think as long as we're not you know, a week-long fast um, repeatedly um, and then doing it to the point where people are noticing these behaviors and kind of calling you out on it, then I think maybe it is time to have a balance. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And that's that's the, the most frustrating and true statement in nutrition is that we have to have balance with these things. And it's like we said off air, what is the one thing we all say if we're in the nutrition world to our clients about what they should do? It depends. I don't know. Maybe you could try this. We we, we want to have the answers. We want to give somebody the meal plan and say, go follow this without asking the questions. Like, what does little Johnny like to eat? Like you said before, what is my husband going to do? There's so much more nuance to it. And the principles remain the same. And I, I love that you went there with with the markers of, of health. What should we be looking for to determine health? I, I, I don't know if this is true. I think this is impossible to really prove that it would be true or not. But there's somebody in the carnivore space that says the best thing you can do to measure health is to see how you're feeling today. If you're feeling good today, you're probably mm-hmm. going to be feeling pretty good tomorrow. And I, I like that. I, I think that can be really helpful. If you feel like you've got a lot of brain fog, if you feel like you're achy and you can't play with your kids as much and you're getting home from work and you're not present with your family, that might be a really good sign, even without labs to say that, you know what, we can increase your health. Let's use food as a tool to help give you some solutions for those things so that you can enjoy your life more. And I think you hit on something super important, lifestyle. Can you, you know, when I was before keto, I couldn't ride a bike with my kids. I couldn't go for hikes. Mom sat in the car while they hiked with dad. So yeah, are you at a point where you can pursue the kind of lifestyle that you're happy with, even if it's being able to walk around the mall or walk or go through Walmart without having to have a scooter. I mean, I, a lot of the people I work with are kind of at that where it's a struggle for them to stand up long enough to cook a meal. But that's another, I think, tremendously important indicator of health. Does it impact your lifestyle in ways that keep you from doing the kinds of things that you really want to do? But I also think, and I really want to touch on this, Casey, briefly, that I also think we have to be so careful with like what's good and what you said, you know, you're nutritionist, you want to give people the whole, like, it's up to you and it depends and and that kind of thing. I think the very best diet is the one that you can follow and that you can feel good about. Um, You know, just like we established the cabbage soup diet is not a good option for me. (laughs) I was hungry. I was hungry when I tried to do that. Low fat isn't a, a good option for me. But that doesn't mean that it's not a good option for other people. And I think that kind of approaching the conversation respectfully um, and recognizing that, okay, maybe low fat works for my friend because she can eat that on the go, right? And she has a busy lifestyle. It fits her lifestyle. Um, So yeah, I think that's really important. It's the one that you can sustain. I love that. That you can do over time. I love that. And again, as as nutrition people, and we've been at this for a while, we may have an idea of what's more ideal or less ideal without, you know, we we forget all the time that our journey was the same. We had to start somewhere. And maybe that starting somewhere was just simply bringing home a box of pasta and that jar of tomato sauce and making a simple meal at home. Is it the most nutritious? No, it's not the most delicious either, but that's a start. If you are doing Grubhub three times a day, like that will at least get you on the right path and you'll start to learn about food and cooking and all that stuff. And so again, I just, I so much appreciate you and being able to have that conversation without having like solid answers, but just something to be really aware of, which mm-hmm. I really love. You've already mentioned a little bit about your program, Homemade Health, but I'd love to tell, have you tell us a little bit more and tell the listeners like what, what, it, what your t- latest program entails. Okay. So we're, it's, it's, it's kind of, I'm looking at the name like it's homemade.health. That's the website. Um, but it is a community of people. We do live cooking sessions. So once a week we're making recipes, we're doing seasonal things. Like I'm, I'm telling people about, um, well, right now we're getting ready to get into the holidays. So I'm doing a lot of holiday recipes because the hardest time I think for people is Halloween, right? They get surrounded by Halloween candy. They go off plan and then they're like, ah, oh, Thanksgiving's coming up, right? And so they just, I'll, I'll deal with it. And then as soon as Thanksgiving's, you know, through the door, even before Thanksgiving's through the door, we're thinking about Christmas. I'll start in the new year. I'll be good. Oh, that language, I'll be good. So right now we're focusing on, okay, 
what are the kind of holidays, you, or excuse me, what are the recipes you can have for holidays? How can you plan so that you can make yummy food that your family's going to love or so that you, if you're the only one in your family, you can do this. The other thing we're doing a lot of talking about is um, tweaking recipes for macros. How do you make it higher protein? What are some substitutes? I've been giving them high protein desserts, um, high protein side items without using a lot of protein powders. That's another thing. I really love to be able to get nutrition from food rather than supplements or powders. There's a place. I mean, if you are struggling to get 40 grams of protein a day, maybe it's not a bad thing to have a shake, right? But let's try to get it from delicious food. Um, uh, on a regular basis. But anyway, so we do that kind of thing. It's a community. People can ask me questions directly. Um, and sometimes I get these like frantic emails like, oh, this is in the oven. What do I do? And it's like, <laughs> my husband's like, you're 1-800 Betty Crocker. But, um, but it is a community of people who try to support each other. We do a monthly challenge. And sometimes the monthly challenge, it's a simple like this month, our monthly challenge is reach out to somebody else who's on a journey. Doesn't have to be somebody doing keto or low carb. Reach out to somebody else once a week. That's your challenge. It's week out to reach out to someone once a week to touch base to see how they're doing and to see how you're doing. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But anyway, we do a monthly challenge. Um, it is the recipes are low carb or keto, but I don't. We don't follow any particular mantra uh, as far as like diet stuff. A lot of it's about cooking and how to um, to do things. Like we did a series. I did a series on ice cream, and um, one of the, over the summer. And one was higher protein ice cream. One was egg free. One was dairy free. And so then they get an ebook. Um, I do an ebook about every quarter, so every three months. I publish a different ebook for them, whether it's a meal plan. Um, right now, I'm working on the book. Um, we have uh, a 30-minute meal plan, meals that can be made in less than 30 minutes, uh, that kind of thing. And then I'll be doing a holiday ebook uh, for them as well. So yeah, it's really just about the whole food and sharing. And people will they'll share um, in that we have a community. I call it the hub. And so it's not Facebook. And they, that's where they can ask me questions or they can share where they're having struggles. Um, sometimes it's just like trying to find stuff. But once a week we're live, we're face-to-face. Um, I invite them to actually cook at the same time with me. So I publish all of the ingredients and they can be in their kitchen. They can stop me in real time and go, like this, mine doesn't look like yours. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, yeah, so anyway, we do. We have a lot of fun. We um and and it's it's very casual. I try to do the live sessions at different times in the day and the week and weekends. I do at least one weekend a month for people who are, are working and don't have flexibility with their schedule. So anyway, that's, that's what amazing. it is. Yeah, that's amazing. I've done lots of different cooking classes over the years and some were like a lot more formal, but I really appreciated the ones that were informal. And so to, to be able to deliver that in a community where people can ask each other questions, I think that's so underrated, where people can get that support, not only from you, but from each other is absolutely wonderful. And I just absolutely love your content and your message and your delicious Thank recipes. You. Christy Sullivan, Aww. I know you've already mentioned it, but where are the best places where people can go to find you and connect with you and your work? Um, oh gosh, um, Facebook, um, Simply Keto is my page. Um, Homemade.health is my closed cooking community. I do have a very large Facebook group, um, Low Carb Journey to Health is my closed group, about 200,000 folks. And I'm probably most active in there with an amazing team of moderators to answer questions. Uh, but yeah, that's where they can find me. And my books are on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Target, any of those kinds of places that sell books. That's awesome. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Christy Sullivan, again, thank you thank so you. very much for your approach around food and health and healthy eating and, and understanding Again, all the nuance of this, this can get really complicated and technical, um, but you found a way to present this in a way that's really simple. It can help people at least get going in the right direction and feel confident about that. So thank you so very much for everything that you do. And thank you so much for taking time to appear on our show today. We really appreciate you. And this has been another Thanks episode. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. I really oh, such, enjoyed it. Such an honor, such an honor. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio.
As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long form very informative and concise episodes called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show, Boundless Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We are also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to these premium podcast episodes, the Balanced Body Radio Premium Podcast. We have three that are launching right now, and I will be making a new one every other week. And we believe that we are providing these for a very, very high value. So please check us out on Patreon, check the link in the notes to be able to get there. And thank you as always for listening to Balanced Body Radio.